Friends, at this time, we'd like to turn our attention to the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bible with you, open it up with me to Mark chapter 14. That is a lengthy chapter. There's many events take place in it. In fact, though Mark is the uh, the briefest of the four Gospels, it just one event happens after the other very quickly. All the events of uh, Jesus' betrayal, uh, the trial, his crucifixion, all take place in two chapters in Mark, in chapters 14, and begin with the trial in chapter 15. The resurrection is chapter 16, the final chapter of the Gospel of Mark. So we are in the Gospel of Mark. We began last week in Mark chapter 14 with Jesus wanting to celebrate the Passover for a final time in this earthly lifetime with his disciples. They've made preparation. They found the upper room ready for them, and Jesus shared that time with them. The Gospel of John reveals to us that it wasn't just the Passover meal with the Lord's Supper instituted at that time, but Jesus also shared teaching with them. Uh, we call them the upper room discourse. It's about the future of the church, the coming of the Holy Spirit and his ministry in the life of people, and it went on for some length of time. And then as we finished last week, we saw that that time together, it wrapped up, and then with the closing hymn, they went out into the darkness. Well, we pick up the story, not in Mark, but I want to reference a verse from John chapter 18. The first two verses of John chapter 18 tell us, it says, when they had finished praying, closing that time together in the upper room, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. That sets the stage for what we're going to see in this passage tonight as we continue. Or this tonight, I'm talking to people. If you watch it later tonight, this is daytime. The time change threw me off. Not that far. I don't know about you folks, but that falling back, I would rather spring ahead, not only because we have spring ahead of us, but when you fall back, you still wake up the same time. How many of you, if you're honest, you woke up before your alarm clock today, it was pitch dark outside, but your body still tells you, your body has natural functions I will not go into. The main one is it needs coffee in the morning. And so I wake up and I'm laying there hoping my wife is awake next to me. I'm listening for telltale signs that she will wake up and go make coffee. And I'm just, <laughs> that's too much information. All goes to tell you that scientists have said, it's proven, this is the more difficult of the two time changes. When we seem to get an extra hour of sleep, it throws us off. So it's not tonight, it's this morning. Okay, we've got that straight. It says in the Gospel of John that Jesus and his disciples, they crossed the Kidron Valley into an olive grove where Jesus, as was his wont, had taught his disciples on many occasions. And it seemed that rather than staying during that final week in Jerusalem, Jesus always left the city at night. Perhaps he went to Bethany, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, or more likely with that group of disciples following him, they camped out in that olive grove. Now we know the name of that olive grove because the other two of the other four gospels uh, reference it as Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Jesus 
across the Kidron Valley because Gethsemane is below the Temple Mount. It's just to the east. The Kidron Valley is between the Temple Mount with the Great Temple and the Mount of Olives to the east. And in that deep, steep valley, there runs a stream, the Kidron Valley, the Kidron Stream, that brook which runs through the valley. Now, this being the season of the Passover, preparation day when thousands upon thousands of Passover lambs were being sacrificed on the Temple Mount so that on the festival, the Jewish families could partake of the Passover meal together, we know what the Kidron Valley was like. It was terrible. I've been to Jerusalem a number of occasions and underground you can go and see many of the parts of Herod's temple that are no longer visible above ground today as the modern level of the city has risen in some places uh, 20 to 30 feet higher than it was in Jesus time. One of the things that you can see if you travel along the western wall of the ancient temple mount is a great, seems like a bridge to our eyes. There's great arches and the priest used it as a pedway to walk into the temple precincts from their homes in the upper city. They did that so they wouldn't walk where the common people walked. They did not want to even set foot in the footstep of an unclean person because they felt that would make them religiously unclean. But one of the amazing things this great thing did, it was also an aqueduct. This structure carried large amounts of water into the Temple Mount from the west. And we know why. Because they needed to cleanse the, the, uh, the area, the altar, the tools that were used, and the wholesale slaughter of these sacrificial animals. Otherwise, it would be a gruesome, an unclean, a terrible sight. And they would wash that blood away. And we know that blood didn't go back west. It always traveled east out of the Temple Mount into the Kidron Valley. And so at this season especially, Josephus and others tell us that the stream in the Kidron Valley ran red with blood. It was full of blood. And so to cross the Kidron Valley, people who did that, you always knew they did it because the hems of their robes were red with blood. Their feet were covered in blood. So it's an amazing, and it really sets the scene for what Jesus is facing. They go into the darkness, they cross this stream of blood, and they enter into this olive grove that we know today as the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Now that's an important place for us. An important place, this garden, because this is where the great struggle happens. It's not on the cross. Jesus underwent terrible physical punishment during that time following his trial, the scourging and so forth, the crown of thorns, the nails. But the physical trial pales in comparison to the spiritual battle fought by God's Son. And that battle takes place, friends, today as we see in that garden of Gethsemane, the scene of struggle. But the Bible, we always see God, though it's many authors used to put his Bible together over centuries and centuries, we see the hand of a single author. And we see how something that begins, that we find at the beginning of the Bible, we find its fulfillment at the end, it fits perfectly together. Gethsemane has its counterpart. It's the Garden of Gethsemane, and it finds its counterpart in the first book of the Bible, the book of the beginnings, Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. Gethsemane is where the problem of sin that began in the Garden of Eden really 
comes to its conclusion. We turn our attention to that first garden. I've called it today the garden of defeat and death. Oh, we know the garden of Eden. So beautiful. The perfect place for us. Men and women created in the image of God to experience him there, to live in fellowship with him, to live a perfect life. But sin entered in and ruined it all. Sin followed by death, as always happens. That is the old story that we know well. We go back and refresh our memories in Genesis chapter 3, the first seven verses. We read from the NIV Bible, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. We failed. Our parents, Adam and Eve, they failed. They believed the lie. They were defeated. And death followed. Eve corrected the serpent. God said that we could eat of all the trees but one. There had to be one rule that we could choose to obey God. And that said that if we broke it, we would die. I'm sure she didn't even understand what that really meant. We know not only the physical cessation of life, but it's the eternal separation of the sinful soul from the holy God. Scripture promises that this is always the case. Not often, but always Two quick verses to reference the Bible, a teaching that goes on and on, that thread through the Bible. Ezekiel 18, verse 20, says that the soul who sins is the one who will die. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, verse 23, we're told that the wages, that is the right payment that always follows the wages of sin, is death. The soul that sins is the one that will die. And we did. We were defeated. But in the fullness of time, God sent His Son. The seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head and that would redeem Adam's helpless race. We're not going to reference it on the screen, but Scripture in the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, says so clearly that sin entered through the first Adam. Our parents fell and our race fell into sinfulness. But salvation came through the second man, the second Adam, through Jesus. And friends, just as Adam fell in that garden, Jesus triumphs in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the story we look at today. But that triumph was at a high price, friends. 
Because Scripture is very clear and the prophets of the Old Testament spoke of it that Jesus suffered for you and I. In fact, Isaiah says he was crushed. Though the head of the serpent would be crushed, he would strike the heel of Eve's offspring of Jesus. He suffered. And he suffered for us. He was crushed, the prophet says. And how appropriate in God's perfect foreknowledge that Jesus, he was crushed by our iniquity and sin and the place that he was crushed was Gethsemane. Because Gethsemane is a compound word in the original language. It's gat shmanim. It means the oil press. The place where the olives are crushed to give up that precious life-giving oil. Got Shmanim. Now, some pictures I showed, I found them from a couple years ago, uh, very briefly remind us of what took place in Gethsemane. Not only can you go to that very spot today and see ancient olive trees, but you find in certain places carved into the bedrock, you find the apparatus for the olive oil producing machinery which took place there. The first thing that happened is those ripe olives were taken. And if you have ever been to the Middle East, you know the olives you eat on the table. They are potent. They are powerful. And there are many different varieties of them. They're very rich in oil, but they're very pungent and almost bitter to the taste. We're used to a milder pickled olive that we get over here. Well, they took those hard olives And they would put them into a great mill and then a stone would crack them open. A stone would begin the process of breaking them down by crushing them, breaking them into pieces. Still, their oil was not given up. So that oil was put into woven bags. They put into those woven bags, those round baskets, and they were stacked and then heavy stones were put on top of them and they were squeezed and squeezed until that rich oil came out. Now, friends, this oil, this oil was everything to the people of the ancient world. It served so many purposes. It was the beautiful, pure oil that lit their lamps and burned with a, with a pleasing aroma without too much soot in their homes. Their lamps burned olive oil. But it was also the primary with wheat, olive oil, wine. Those are the cornerstones of the ancient diet. The oil added the needed calories to all their food. They fried their meat in it. They put it in the in their dough to make cakes with it. It added the richness to their food. They lived on it. But it was also their medicine. When they treated wounds, they poured wine and oil into the wounds. It soothed skin. It had religious purposes. It anointed the heads of kings and prophets. Ladies were beautiful because of oil. It was the foundation of their cosmetics. We read in the Old Testament that though wine may make a man's heart glad, it's the, it's the oil that makes your face shiny and happy looking. Isn't that something? Their standards of beauty might be a little bit different. A nice shiny face. They wanted it really to shine in those days. It was their medicine. It was their food. It was their light. It was everything. In fact, even today in the land of Israel, the olive tree is the national symbol. Canada, we have a maple leaf. The Americans have many symbols, including eagles. But in Israel, it's the beautiful olive tree. 
It's against the law to harvest a single tree in Israel. You need special permits to ever cut down an olive tree, even today. That precious oil, that place of crushing, that place of pressure, that garden is the one Jesus retired to. We turn our attention now to the account as we pick it up in Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 34. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Jesus took the inner circle a little further. He took them in. Most of the disciples just bedded down for the night, but the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, those who had seen him and been with him in those highlight times, they were the ones who were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were now with him to stand by him in this greatest struggle as he was crushed by grief, by sorrow. He told them to keep watch and he went further in to pray by himself. He says, I need to pray. You keep watch. And as we'll see later, when he said that, he meant watch and pray. They went on into the garden with Jesus, stayed behind, and he continues further in. But he said his soul was so heavy his disciples must have been saddened, disturbed, and frightened all at the same time because they'd never seen the master who was calm in a raging storm, who could stand up to the arguments of the Pharisees, who never lost his composure. They saw him weighed down and crushed with grief. Other gospel passages say that Jesus stumbled into the garden and threw himself face down, that he was in such distress that he sweat drops of blood. He was crushed. And we know now, as we look back on it, what was weighing him down. It was the thought and the knowledge of what lay just in front of him. We've already referenced the physical suffering that was coming with the crucifixion. But was there a spiritual battle, that greater spiritual battle that stood just at hand? Scripture tells us, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 53, Beginning in verse 4, we'll only read half this passage now and reference it again in a little bit. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 4, Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And friends, it's the crushing iniquity of mankind that Jesus faced. The spotless Lamb of God. Just as the spotless lambs were being slaughtered on the Temple Mount in that season, Jesus, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, now began that process as He faced that great struggle and had to take on your iniquity and my iniquity and bear our sin. And he knew that as terrible as the physical suffering would be, that bearing the sin of all mankind would separate him from his father. And he couldn't bear the thought of it. 
And so crushed with this grief, he stumbles into the garden to become our sin. The thought of it is what he was struggling with. For instance, in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle Paul writes of Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, we don't like to do it to think back on the biggest mistakes we've ever made in our lives. Most thoughtless, uncaring things we have done. Words that cut. Actions that wounded. But Jesus thought of them. Every one of them. And he was going to take them upon himself and bear them to the cross. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Again, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That is, the wages of sin is death. By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus bore not only your sin and mine, but the curse of it, the shame of it, and the punishment for it. He became our sin. And there in the garden as he faced that, that awful, terrible thing that lay right in front of him, he prayed. Oh, he prayed. And friends, that's the key to Gethsemane. That's what makes this garden a garden of victory. Rather than the garden of death and deceit, we look at Gethsemane, the garden of prayer and victory. You would think Adam and Eve, who have everything a person could want, walk with God in the cool of the evening, everything perfect, that if anyone could stand up to Satan's wiles, it would be them. And here we see Jesus Though fully God, he's also fully human. And he is beaten down and appalled by the thought of bearing your sin and mine, which would separate him from a God, becoming a curse and being accursed and hung on a tree. But Jesus prayed about it. He prayed about it. And that's the beauty of what we see in this account is the prayer of our master as we, his followers, were asleep at the switch. Continuing in Mark chapter 14, picking up the story again in verse 35. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. He uses that intimate term for his father. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you, could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away to pray and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man 
is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. The time had come. The thing that marked it is that three times Jesus went and he prayed, Father, if there's any way, if you can find any way, do it. Take this cup from me. Bearing the iniquity of us, your sin and mine, that cup that he spoke of is the rightful wrath of God against our sin, which Jesus was to face in our place. The wrath of God. Oh, it's referenced as a cup in many places throughout Scripture. Just a couple examples. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. The grapes of wrath the wine of God's fury, the cup of His wrath. These are pictures to help people understand God's hatred for sin, which kills and destroys mankind, those that He seeks to love and to save. And that's not just the Old Testament. The last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation, that same imagery is seen in Revelation chapter 14. John writes in verse 9, A third angel followed them, And said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Friends, this is a cup no one wants to take. And Jesus, fully God yet fully human, fought that battle In his humanity, he says, God, take it away if possible. But as the eternal word of God, the son of God from eternity, he knew God's plan and he knew it was the only way to save lost mankind. God, if it be possible, take this cup, the cup of God's wrath against sin away from me. That cup which would separate him from his father whom he loved. And yet in John chapter 18, when the betrayer had brought the soldiers to the garden, as we'll see in the next week or two, Peter tries to defend Jesus briefly by abortively attacking one of the high priest's servants. And Jesus tells him in verse 11, Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? The cup of wrath for your sin and mine. Jesus would drink it in its fullness. Physically, he would be punished and he would be nailed to the cross to pay the wages of our sin in his death. Far greater the pain as he hung there accursed and God turned his face away. My God, why have you forsaken me? God did it because of my sin and your sin that Jesus bore. And a holy God could not bear to look at it. Once again, before we go to the Lord's table, let's be reminded by the remainder of that passage in Isaiah chapter 53, picking up partway through verse 5. 
the punishment. That's the cup, the wrath. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Friends, that's what we're here today to remember as we come to the Lord's table. Remember last week as we talked about the Lord's Supper, there were the passages that spoke of us not to partake of it in an unworthy manner, not that we should be sinless or could be sinless as we come to the Lord's table, but that we recognize it was Jesus giving His body to the cross and shedding His blood for our forgiveness, that the cup and the bread have those significance to us. We were told to examine our hearts and confess our sins. And so for just a quiet moment, in the quiet of this moment, I'd invite you to bow your head with me and let God bring to mind anything that you need to confess. For if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just. He'll forgive your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in this quiet time, as Jesus invites us to his table, come to me, he said. Lord, as we come to him, we think of our lives and reflect upon the times where we put self first. And Lord, it shames us because we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane putting us first. He was selfless. He took our punishment and paid the price as He died in our place. So that by faith in Him, we too are part of His resurrection life. Father, as we come to the table, we thank You, Lord, for the bread. It reminds us that Jesus, though He is eternally God, He walked the same earth we walk. Lord, He lived and breathed and ate and drank. He walked with His friends. He wept at the tomb of His loved ones. And Lord, when the time came, He was willing to bear the cross, our cross. And for that, Lord, we give You thanks. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Friends, as you take your fellowship cup in hand, I want to remind you once again what the Apostle Paul wrote. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. Amen. As we take the cups in hand, begin to peel back the foil, 
Remember, as Paul wrote for whenever he said in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's remember Jesus together. Friends, I'd invite you to stand with me as we're dismissed with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are children of Adam and Eve. Lord, we fell away from you so long ago in the garden as our parents sinned. And Lord, every generation takes up that task. We too, as we come into our time of majority and make our own decisions, Father, it's confirmed. We are sinners. And yet, Lord, the second Adam, he too was in a garden. And Lord, rather than believing deceit and putting self first and being defeated by sin and death, Lord Jesus overcame. Lord, rather than sleeping, he prayed. And Lord, you heard his prayer And though the cup did not pass by him, Lord, he prayed your will and he lived it. Father, as we're dismissed from this place of communion and worship to our places of life and ministry, whether it be at home, at school, at work, Lord, we too ask for your will for our lives. Lord, help us to shine your love in this dark and hurting world. Be with us as we go. We want to go as followers of Jesus. We ask all of this in his strong name. Amen. God bless you and keep you.